Welcome to episode 12 of Garner's Greek Mythology. In this episode, we'll start with Hermes and then meet Hera in Hestia. You've heard the expression about government taking care of you from the cradle to the grave. Well, as you'll learn, Hermes took care of people before the cradle and after the grave. He was one of the 12 Olympians and was amazingly complex. But more than anything, Hermes ensured fertility. Welcome to Garner's Greek Mythology. This is Patrick Garner. I'm a mythologist and author of three best-selling novels. They constitute a trilogy and have one theme, that the ancient Greek gods are here and that they never left. Imagine with me that they were never myths. You can read more about my novels and this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. In this episode, we sing of Hermes. What a strange and handsome god. Who was he? He's depicted in statues as a beautiful youth. The Romans called him Mercury. His winged hat even shows up on American coins. Check out a pre-1945 10-cent piece. They're called Mercury Dimes. You'll often see Hermes wearing a round cap or a helmet with wings. Small wings poked out from his sandals as well. We might say he was swift of foot, but that's a cleaned up version of the charming and powerful god who was the son of Zeus. Somewhat like Kakate, Hermes protected boundaries. The boundary markers called Herms were set at borders. You may remember that Hakate was found at crossroads. Hermes protected property lines and perimeters. Hakate flitted between the worlds of the living and the dead, while Hermes visited the underworld only long enough to lead the dead to their afterlife. He accompanied the old boatman, Sharon, who ferried the dead across the river Styx. Hermes delivered messages as well as the dead. With his winged feet, he carried news from god to god. Unsurprisingly, he was the deity of diplomats. Oh, there's another aspect of Hermes I haven't mentioned. He was the patron god of petty thieves. Think of pickpockets and low-level criminals. And as if that wasn't enough, he was also the god of dreams. Greeks offered him the last libation before sleep. But wait, <laughs> there's more. He protected cattle as well. So what do we have here? A god of fertility, the guardian of borders, a companion to the dead as they made their brief crossing over the river Styx. The god of dreams, a messenger and the protector of cattle and even thieves. So how do these elements relate? 
I think they don't. We want logic, right? Logic. The ancient Greek gods would laugh at our attempt to apply order to chaos. Years ago, during a visit to Athens, I was startled to encounter in an archaeological museum what are called Herms. Herms. Hermes. Yes, as you guessed, Herms were a depiction of the god, and they depicted him in his role as fertility god. But before I describe their appearance, I should note that the ancient Greeks thought very differently than we do. You're probably nodding your head thinking, yeah, sure, sure, whatever you say. But if you haven't seen a Herm, you probably aren't following me. Let's use a couple examples of what I mean by thinking differently. All contestants in the original Olympics were naked. Just imagine that today. Foot races, wrestling, hand-to-hand -hand combat. All of these events were conducted by men who wore nothing. Clothes, you see, got in the way and hid the beautiful bodies they celebrated. For centuries, men who were in the ruling elite exercised in the nude. The public gymnasiums were forums where no one was clothed. And similarly, nudity was universal at public baths. So our modesty and our laws about public decency are a very modern thing. No Greek man would have understood us. They took great pride in their bodies and exercised daily so they were always in fighting shape. Embarrassment was inconceivable. But I mention all of this to set the stage. After all, we were talking about Hermes and Herms, and the fact that he was primarily a fertility god. Like the Greeks, these Herms were unique. Um, imagine a five or six foot tall pillar that's perhaps a foot and a half wide. They were made of wood and stone or bronze. The examples I saw were marble. They were polished into a smooth surface. And although they marked boundaries, they served a more important purpose. At the top of the pillar was the bearded face of Hermes almost always depicted as a middle-aged or older man. Then midway down the column was another part of the male anatomy. The ancient Greeks called this type of statue Ithuphalos. Remember that Herms were a symbol of fertility and considered to be a sacred object by the Greeks. They weren't profane or pornographic. On the contrary, Herms were, well, they were venerated and they were revered because they functioned as objects thought to have magic powers. The Herm assured the occupants of both virility and fertility, and they weren't hidden from view or locked away. They, they were hung prominently on the outside of homes and in public places. No family could risk childlessness, and the Herms were not decorations but a necessity. They were a form of physical and spiritual insurance. These displays were found throughout cities in Greece. There were also less 
graphic versions of herms that were placed at property corners and perimeters, but these were simply piles of stones. Years ago when I wandered through ruins on the island of Delos in the Aegean, remnants of herms were everywhere. And in ancient Athens, the city exhibited thousands of these objects. In 415 BC, hundreds of them were mutilated the night before the launch of a major war expedition. Doomsayers warned the expedition would fail. It was to be commanded by a charismatic general named Alcibiades, who was a friend of Socrates. But what was shocking was that he and his drinking buddies were accused of the very destruction. It was said they partied the night before and had then run through the city before dawn, mutilating the herms with clubs. The sacrilege, considered astonishing. Panic ensued, yet Alcibiades, said to have a silver tongue, prevailed and 140 Athenian ships launched for Sicily. But the expedition was a disaster. The doomsayers were right. Thousands of men were killed and all the ships lost. The cost to Athens was immense. And what about Alcibiades? He escaped before the battle began. He gotten word that the Athenians had called him back to the city to try him for impiety. As he fled, he shifted his alliance from Athens to Sparta, from his mother city to the city's harshest enemy. And there he fought for the Spartans against Athens. Then a few years later, he switched sides again fighting for Athens. As you've noticed, Greeks spent a tremendous amount of time at war. Alcibiades was driven solely by cunning and deceit, and he survived crisis after crisis by employing his seemingly irresistible charm. Unscrupulous to the end, Alcibiades was murdered in his mid-50s in what is now Turkey by agents of Sparta. But despite evidence to the contrary, there were Athenians who said it wasn't the Spartans, but that Hermes had finally tracked him down. A mere decade had passed since that blasphemous night in Athens, but as you can imagine, gods never forget. As I've noted, Hermes was more than a fertility god. He also protected cattle. Is there any connection? No, probably not. He was associated with these animals through an odd story that dated back to when he was a mere baby. Remember I mentioned that he was the patron god of thieves? Well, cattle, thievery, Baby Hermes put these two ideas together one night as he lay in his cradle. He'd heard from his mother that Apollo kept golden cattle in a distant pasture. While she slept, he slipped away to see for himself. 
With his winged feet, he was able to find Apollo's golden cows with little effort. Delighting in his ingenuity, he stole 50 of them. The next day, Apollo discovered the theft. He tracked down the thief, the baby lying innocently in his swaddling clothes. <laughs> baby Hermes swore he knew nothing of the theft. You see, already he was a consummate liar. And all of this at an age when human babies can't even talk. Furious and in disbelief, Apollo dragged Hermes up to Olympus and reported the trickery to Zeus. In short order and unable to lie to Zeus, Hermes confessed and agreed to lead Apollo to where he'd hidden the cattle. And to avoid further punishment, Hermes agreed to become the protector of cows, which satisfied both Zeus and Apollo. But in his heart, Hermes loved the excitement of being a thief. And so he became not only the protector of cattle, but of pickpockets and common criminals. But I haven't discussed his background. Like so many of the Olympians, Hermes was the son of Zeus. Nothing surprising there. His mother was one of seven daughters of Atlas, a titan. Her rendezvous with Zeus, though, was hardly a love affair, as with so many of Zeus's conquests. He saw her and had his way with her. And the resulting pregnancy led to the birth of Hermes. Little more is none of her, except that at some point, Zeus turned all seven daughters of Atlas into stars. We know them as the Pleiades, a constellation 440 light years from our solar system. Such was Zeus's reach and his callousness. And did Hermes grieve at his mother's transformation? History is silent, so we'll assume he did. I've mentioned that Hermes accompanied the dead to the underworld. Perhaps this dark aspect of Hermes explains how he also became the god of dreams. Greeks would raise a cup and toast him before sleep, hoping to avoid nightmares. A quick swallow of some refreshment would suffice. The key was to graciously salute the god of dreams, praying for peaceful, deep sleep. In our last episode, we spoke of Ares and how he was uncomplicated. Hermes, on the other hand, was like an actor, constantly shifting roles. He was wildly complex and quite unlike the two goddesses we'll discuss next. Hera. She was one of the Olympic goddesses and Zeus's sister. She was also Zeus's seventh wife. She was beautiful and proud of her beauty. In her eyes, all other women were competition. It was simple, she wanted Zeus for herself, which Zeus roundly rejected. He was the king of the gods and 
would simply do as he wished. Consequently, Hera became infamous for her unbridled jealousy. As we've seen in many of the previous episodes, Zeus was constantly on the prowl, and Hera seemingly lived to punish the poor girls who were his victims. As queen of Olympus, she conceived six children. Almost all were troubled in one way or another. Two of the most famous were Ares and Hephaestus. We'll include Hephaestus in our next episode. I call him the Leonardo of his time because like the artist Leonardo da Vinci, he was a master of all he did. You can also meet him in my novel, Homo Divinitus. But Hera herself, she's largely remembered for her unforgiving vindictiveness. The Romans, though, renamed her Juno, which is Latin for Queen of the Heavens. In her new incarnation, she became, ironically enough, the goddess of marriage. Hera, now Juno, saw her jealous edges softened and her spitefulness turned into an unexpected pleasantness. final goddess in this episode, Hestia. She was the divinity of the hearth, the keeper of the sacred fire at the center of every home. Her nephew was Apollo and her brother Poseidon. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that both tried to woo her. The gods were always getting involved with each other as well as with mortals, but in her case, they failed. Hestia utterly rejected them. Instead, she took vows of chastity, joining Artemis and Athene in spurning love. The Greek poet Homer celebrated her in one of his hymns, writing, Hestia, you have won the greatest of honors in the dwellings of all, both men and gods. To you, the sweet wine is poured both first and last. In my books, Cycladic Girls and Homo Divinitus, Hestia is involved in one of the most incredible love stories of all times. In our next episode, we hang out with Hera's son, Hephaestus. The Romans called him Vulcan. In addition to being married to Aphrodite, Hephaestus was famous for inventions that astonished even the divinities. During the Trojan War, he made the impenetrable shield used by the great warrior Achilles and weapons for the goddess Athene. But most amazing, his innovations included inventing the first robots. The Greek word he used was automatons. He crafted flying eagles, barking guard dogs, bronze bulls, and 
fire-breathing horses, but he hardly stopped there. His most spectacular invention came in the form of human-like robots created to help him at his forge. We'll go into far more detail soon. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.